Oh, man. All right. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, good morning. It is really good to be with you guys. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. This morning, and as you turn there, um, I do want to say thank you for letting me be a part of uh, being here. I, it may sound cliche when someone comes in and, uh, and teaches or does anything else, and they just say thank you, but over time, uh, there is a um, great appreciation in my own heart for the weightiness that comes with trusting someone else to preach the scriptures uh, to your church, and uh, so I just want you to know that's it's a significant, uh, weighty deal, and I'm really thankful and honored to be here. And you have an incredible church. I mean, you just, you just do. So I hope that you understand that. If you don't, now you know. Um, incredible, incredible church. Uh, Matthew 20 uh, is a passage where Jesus is addressing really two words. Um, these two words contradict each other. These two words are in opposition with one another. It's, it's these two words of comparison and contentment. And just so you know where this comes from for me, really in the last seven, eight months alone, uh, this sermon was written out of me just journaling a lot uh, about my lack of contentment and how I felt like comparison ruled and raged in me. So I don't know if anyone else, when I say the term comparison, if that at all uh, perks you up and you can identify with that. If so, just blink twice. Um, But uh, I feel like it's one of the most significant issues that we can even address, and here's why. Um, I think that virtually every action that we act upon or withhold, and every word that we speak or withhold, is built around this issue of comparison. And you think about it, um, how you dress, uh, what you're going to say in front of a group of people or not say, uh, what you should say or not say, um, things that uh, you say in a different tone with different people. Uh, as opposed to others, um, things you want people to believe about you uh, that may sound one way with another, but you want someone else to believe something else about you. Uh, we're driven by comparison. I mean, just constantly driven by it. And so we're going to address these two words, comparison and contentment. We're going to spend a majority of the time on comparison because I think we need to unpack that a lot. And then we're going to look at what Paul has to say in just a little bit uh, about uh, where do we find contentment? And what does that actually look like? Because the, the, the term contentment doesn't sound really desirous. It doesn't sound like something that uh, we're really after. It, honestly, the term contentment sounds boring. It, it sounds like, oh, I'm content with that. Um, but in your heart, you're like, I don't want to be. I want to be full of vitality and passion and drive and hope. I want us to see that contentment actually does mean those things. But it's all about direction with that. So uh, let me give maybe a little bit of a perspective, something I've kind of gone through the last few months uh, that helps kind of shape our direction. Um, as a parent, I've got three kids, so married 19 years, my wife Christy, and then three kids. Uh, Paige is 13 going on, uh, Lord knows. Uh, it depends on the week, but uh, she does not want to be 13, I know that. Um, 13-year-old Tyler is nine, and he's my one boy, uh, and, then, and then Claire is seven. So with 13, nine, and seven, by and large, they get along, it's all relative. And um, it, it's one of those things that when you have kids who are in school, the idea of summer sounds great until the first day of summer. So it's like, you know, by the time uh, spring break happens and then April and May, you're thinking, I can't wait for summer. I mean, we're getting up, making lunches, trying to convince our kids to make their own lunches, and then grounding them because they won't make their lunches. Like, I just want freedom from that because summer offers freedom. So uh, then su- summer happens, and all they do is argue. 
and you spend, it's a full-time job that you don't get paid for to break up fights. And then you just find yourself being a really bad parent. Like, hey, you go to your room, play video games literally for 13 hours. I'm okay with that. Uh, you can walk over under I-35 if you'd like to and go find a friend. That's fine with me. Just don't argue anymore, right? And, and then you start feeling like I'm the worst parent, but I'm just, I'm just going after comfort right now. So uh, summer's unique. Uh, this past May, last day of school, picked up my youngest two, and uh, Tyler and Claire, and I was like, hey, tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to make a special breakfast for you. And they have one breakfast they love, um, and I need to explain this real quick just so there's some clarity to it. Uh, they're just pancakes, and they come out of a box, and I pour water. There's nothing special about them except they're really big. But they call them daddy cakes, which I find to be a little awkward and strange. Uh, so <laughs> it's like, hey, make daddy cakes. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Uh, but daddy cakes just mean uh, dad is making the pancakes. And, and I pour a little oil in there, and, I mean, they are the size of the skillet. So when they go into the plate, you can't see the plate. So in their mind, they're like, they're not just pancakes, they're daddy cakes. I, I just go with it. So I said, yes, I'll make some daddy cakes. Um, my hope was they would sleep in. That was a, that was a, that was a lie. That wasn't going to happen. And so that morning, first day of summer, I slept. Uh, about 6.30, my son wakes up out of habit. He's an early riser anyway. And uh, he just doing that awkward, like, standing, staring at me thing, which I'm like, a sense of presence, and it's scary. And I wake up, I see him just looking at me. He says, hey, Dad, Daddy Cakes? I'm like, you bet. So excited. So um, going in the kitchen, he sits down. He's got a fork, knife, spoon. I have no idea why, a spoon. And he watches me make it, and he just, he can't wait. Make this uh, Daddy Cake. And um, it's still weird to say, I'm, I made pancakes, okay? I made pancake, and it's so large. And it, you know, two spatulas flip it. A successful flip means it's going to be a great day. And I take that, put it on the plate, pretty big. Uh, a bunch of butter, syrup. Sorry if I'm causing some hunger in you. That's just how it goes. And I place it in front of him. He's like, Dad, these are amazing. It's like, well, eat them first and see if they're amazing. He takes a bite. He goes, oh, the best daddy cakes you've ever made. I made them like three times, and they are the same thing. They are a box of water. I'm like, thanks, man. I've been really working on it, and um, he eats about a third of it, and he's full because they're, they're, they're the size of a small child, and so he eats a portion, and he goes, I'm stuffed. I'm like, did you like it? He goes, thank you so much, Dad. I'm like, you're welcome. He's like, I love you. I'm like, I love you. Summer's the best. So he goes off, and he plays uh, video games. He was allowed to do whatever at that point because I was like, you're the best. I go back to bed thinking Claire's going to sleep in a little longer, but Tyler was kind enough to wake her up. And she came and says, Dad, uh, Daddy Cakes? I'm like, you got it. So go back in. She sits down, gets the same things, including a spoon. Not sure why. Make this one, but this one is a little larger. Uh, no rhyme or reason to it. Um, it, just, it just was. And I put it on the plate, and truly, you can't see any of the plate. I mean, it's huge. I'm like, mm, this, is, this is over the top. I hand it to her, and she's so, oh, Claire is the one who, like, she's excited about Tupperware. And I was like, wow, it's amazing. I'm like, bless your heart. Uh, so when I put that in front of her, she's like, dad. Like, I thought she was going to cry. I'm like, I love you so I love you more than the other two. Don't tell them that. You're the best. And that's not true. Um, but sometimes. And so uh, I, I just wanted her to go and start eating because I knew what was going on in her heart. In her heart was not, I just love this, but I wonder how big Tyler's was. And so before I could even tell her, hey, don't, don't tell your brother, that it's much larger. She goes, Tyler, come in here and look at the size of my daddy cake. I'm like, oh gosh, this is, summer was great for about an hour. And he comes in, you can see it on his face. He looks at it. He's like, wow, that's really big. I'm like, yeah, really big. So it was yours. You ate a third of it, so, and you loved it, and you loved me. 
And, uh, and he just kept asking questions like, why'd you make her so much bigger? I'm like, it just kind of happened, man. Poured it. It is what it is. And he's like, and then he sits down and he keeps asking like, why would you do that? I'm like, this is way too complex of a question, first day of summer. And then he makes a comment, dad, it's just not, what's the word? Fair. Fair. It's interesting because, what, an hour earlier, I was the greatest dad, the most generous dad. I gave him more than he could possibly handle. Like, I gave him more than could, it wasn't just about sustaining him. It was when he was full, he looked and going, I can't even take in all of this measurement of blessing my dad has given me. But now, I'm the dad who's withholding. Now I'm the dad that hasn't given, I'm holding out on him. Because she got more. But she ate like a fifth of it, you know. And it, it really does. It's one of those moments where like, this is going to go into a sermon at some point. Uh, but it just taught me so much, reminded me of, this is just me. This is how I am. This is my life. Like, I, I'm on a Sunday, and I, if I'm preaching or if I'm hearing the word, I'm singing songs. God, thank you for grace. Why would you give me salvation? I am a mess. Why would you entrust me with your gospel to even articulate to somebody else? Why would you let me be a part of the story of others coming to Christ, and you, you want to use me in all my brokenness. This is crazy. I'm crazy. Why would you do it? You're so full of grace. And then by Monday or Tuesday, um, I forget about a bill that has to be paid. I'm like, man, I don't know where that's going to come from. I bet so-and-so doesn't have to struggle with their bills like this. Why are you holding out on me, Lord? Right? It, it takes that long. Am I right? How come I don't look like her? How come I don't have that physique? How come I don't have that IQ or that GPA? How come I don't know what my five-year plan is? And by the way, five-year plans never work out. Um, how come I don't get to do what I want like they get to do? How come I'm not as relaxed? How come I'm full of anxiety, but they don't seem to have a care in the world? How come they didn't get the promotion? They got the promotion, but I wanted the promotion, and I never seemed to get the promotion. How come they got the house? Well, I still haven't got the house. How come they got engaged, and I don't think they at all deserve it? And I thought by now I would be engaged and I have a plan to be married. How unfair is this, Lord? So Matthew 20 is a parable that Jesus gives us that unpacks this for us a little bit, okay? And, and, and here's what my hope is. My hope is that we'll see comparison for what it is. It's sin. It's foul. It's not something to flirt with. It's, it's, uh, it's something that's dark. And it is at the genesis of a lot of our insecurities and pain. And then we're going to be reminded that Jesus is just so gracious and kind. And he is so compassionate and so giving to us. Hopefully we can rejoice in that together. A um, couple things about comparison. I want to make sure we're aware of the weightiness of this. Uh, there's an example in the New Testament that really spoke to me. Um, Peter, we love Peter because he says things he shouldn't say. We're like, he's like me. And, and then when he says something, you're like, that was wrong, like me. And uh, so remember the guilt he felt because he, within an eye shot and ear shot of Jesus, he denies Jesus blatantly, publicly, three times, boom, 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 carrying all this shame, doesn't even go to the cross, um, so full of I'm not good enough, and I don't deserve anything, right? Uh, Jesus, after crucifixion, um, he is on a shore, and he's cooking them all breakfast. You remember this? There's a scene where uh, Peter sees Jesus, and he just wants to make things right, so he jumps out of the boat and swims ashore. And Jesus has this moment with them of helping them understand grace and forgiveness. They go for a walk, and he starts to answer some questions that Peter has. Peter's a curious cat, and he starts asking about how am I going to die, uh, what kind of uh, position in ministry you're going to give me. So Jesus gives it to him, and he tells him how he's going to die. And he tells him, 
you're going to have a very painful death. It's going to be a lonely death. You're going to be a martyr. Um, now, just put yourself in Peter's shoes for a moment because I want you to emotionally, like with your emotions here, emotively put yourself there. And if you've just been told, here's how you're going to die, what's the only thing you're thinking about? How you're going to die. <laughs> but it's not for Peter. Jesus and Peter are walking along. Jesus tells him how he's going to die. You know what his first question is? He looks back and sees John. And he says, what about him? How crazy is that? Like, I just want to make sure we're clear how woven into our insecurities it is. Even if Jesus tells you, here's the way you're going to end this earth in your life. It's going to be gone until your true life is beginning. Here's how it ends. You're not even thinking about that. You're thinking about, does it compare to his or hers? So it is a, it is a significant issue, okay? It's a significant issue. So we have to understand how profound it is. So let's look at this. Contentment comes after we address this issue, a comparison. Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 1, all right? Uh, the context of this, uh, the disciples are arguing about what their reward will be because they've been following Jesus. Typical argument they're having. And Jesus says, well, I'm going to give you a parable that's confusing to teach you. And so here it is, Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 1. He responds to them by saying this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now let's just push pause. I'm going to do this a few times briefly to make sure we're on the same page with what this text is saying. So he begins telling the story. And every time you come across a parable, you need to be asking two questions every single time. Who represents the heart of God in this? Who represents the heart of man? It's the first thing you always have to ask in a parable. What represents the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man? The things of the spirit, the things of the flesh, okay? So he describes that there's this landowner, this vineyard owner, uh, translation of that. Uh, he's rich. He's wealthy. He doesn't need anybody. He's got everything. It says he goes out early in the morning, and a full day's of work started at 6 a.m. and ended at 6 p.m., 12 hours. He goes early in the morning, goes to the temple. The temple was not just a place where there was worship. It was also the place in the city where uh, those who, who wanted to be hired for daily work, who had no jobs and they wanted to work, um, they would go there and they would be hired for like a temp agency. So he goes there and think clearly. The owner of the vineyard goes there. They don't go to him. He goes to them and seeks them out. And he finds these laborers there and says, I want you to come work in my vineyard. And they agree on something very important. They agree on a denarius a day, which is a day's wages is what it means. They agree on it. And they're thinking, wow, thank you. We didn't know if we'd have a job. This is going to help supply everything we need to provide food and comfort for my family. Like, this was a big deal for them. Thank you for asking us to give us dignity to use our hands today so we weren't idle in our hands. So we were reminded of our, our identity as not only sons, but we get to be workers. It's a good identity. So thank you for that. Like there's grace upon grace being given. They agree on how much they're going to get paid. And they go in and start to work, 12 hours. Verse 3. Going out about the third hour, that's 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard as well, and whatever is right, I will give to you. All right, so let's push pause. So he goes three hours later. There's already these, this one group been working for three hours. Nine o'clock, finds this other group, says, hey, nine hours of work. He does not agree like he did with the first group. Doesn't say, I'm going to give you a denarius today. He says, trust me, I'll pay you what is right. So already there's different pay scales here, okay? At least we think. So then it says this, verse 5. So they went, going out again, 
about the sixth hour, so at noon, and then the ninth hour, this is three o'clock, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, for crying out loud, he goes out at five o'clock. One hour left of work. Like when, when a lot of us are like, five o'clock is shut down time with an hour left. He's going and finding more workers. It says this, um, he found others standing there. He said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? Verse 7, they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said, you go into the vineyard as well. So make sure we have the right story here. He goes to the temple at 6 o'clock. These guys start working for 12 hours, agrees on a denarius a day. They are in agreement. Very happy about the grace and generosity he's given. Goes at 9 o'clock, goes at 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and then at 5 o'clock and agrees with the rest of them, come work in my vineyard. I will pay you what is right. Then the end of the day comes. Verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, his right-hand man, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So he starts with the ones who worked an hour. They don't even have a sweat yet, right? They're like, should I sweat? Like, no, you're done. And the guys who've been working all day are like, whatever. Like, uh, we are toast right now. These guys are like, I feel fresh. And they're about to get paid first. Look, look what happens. Um, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first, verse 9. And when those hired about the 11th hour, who had worked one hour, they came, they each re- received a denarius. So are we getting this? So the thing that was agreed to for the 12-hour workers was not promised to anyone else. The first guys paid worked for one hour, if that, are getting what was agreed to for the all-day workers. So if you're these guys working for an hour, what do you think about this job? Like, best job ever, American dream. Didn't work, got paid. This is what, this is what I went to school for or I didn't pay attention for. This is what it's about. Then these guys who, get, who work four hours, they get paid a denarius. They're like, yeah, this is way more than I thought. This is amazing. All of them, all the way up to the nine-hour workers going, this is amazing. I thought I would get paid chump change. I get paid a whole day's worth. This is amazing. So if you are the ones who worked all day, what's going on in you? You might be thinking, well, this isn't fair yet. Not yet, because you're thinking, okay, if they're getting paid that, then certainly we're going to be rewarded in a unique way for our efforts, right? Let's keep reading and see what Jesus has to say about the situation. Verse 10. Now, when those hired first came, uh, they, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. If you underline things in the Bible, if you make highlights, the word grumbled is a key word, okay? If you're a note taker, you need to jot this down. The term grumbled, and we're going to explain in a minute why, it unpacks the ferocious nature of the flesh in just a minute. Verse 12 saying, these last worked only one hour, You've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Now, we have to push pause on this real quick. This is the thing about parables. It tests your heart. Because if you're looking at this from afar, going, I'll be honest here. Uh, the vineyard owner represents the heart of God here. And the workers, the heart of flesh. But it's not fair. Like, it's amazing how you don't want to say it, but you feel it, don't you? Because you're like, I feel you, man. Like, I want to, he better have a good explanation. Why? Isn't that what we're thinking? Yeah, it's what we're thinking. You know why? Um, because we're just not thankful. We're just not thankful people. Like there was a promise of generosity at the beginning. And they were overwhelmed with it. But now when they look to the left and right and see that other people are getting what they got, but they feel like they did more, all of a sudden they deserve more grace. Now that's a paradox, just so we're clear. Grace is not earned. It's earned by the one who has purchased it for us. You and I don't earn grace. Your good efforts, your hard work, 
your, your, your labor, how much anxiety you have for people, how much you're care. You don't earn grace. So what's happened is, thank you for being generous and giving me this grace. And it turns into, but they got more. I deserve because I earned more. See the paradox there? It's, it's, it's crazy when you look at it. So now you're seeing that there's something that's in us that has an, an uneven bar of measurement in how we see God's generosity. Let's keep going here. Uh, this word grumbled, uh, side note, it's, it's, not, it's not the way you and I think about grumbled. This is one of those moments in the English language so difficult to take uh, what's in the Greek um, and try to unpack it properly. Grumbled for a lot of us is filled with passive aggressiveness, right? So it's like, hey, I'm so happy for you. You don't deserve that, kind of a punk. I'm really happy for you. That's grumbling. Uh, it's when you say something, but under your breath, you're grumbling, right? Notice it doesn't say grumbled about the master. What does it say? Grumbled at the master. So first of all, the direction is not away, it's toward. Secondly, the word grumbled actually in the Greek uh, of this moment, that what this means in definition, is outlandishly and ferociously yelling and screaming. So you see it happening along the way, Denarius, 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 and these guys who work 12 hours going, okay, okay, he better pay us even more. If not, he's going to give a, a piece of our mind. We're going to make sure he knows we're not pleased with him, which I'm sure he's shaking in his boots about it. And so then they go to him. And they go off on him. I can't emphasize the description here of how violent the screaming is, okay? This is not, I'm upset, whatever, I'm never coming back. There are threats being made. There are, how dare you treat me like that? Do you know what you've done? And then it's an accusation. You're not a good giver. You're a liar. So let's just kind of rewind all the way back to Genesis 3. Uh, how did sin come into the world? What was the lie that was believed? Uh, the serpent points out a truth, but flips it upside down into a lie and tells Adam and Eve, so he made all this for you, and that's true. God made everything as a gift for Adam and Eve, like literally everything. Here's a gift. My prized creation is yours. Steward it. It's all yours. Just not one thing. Just not that one tree. So instead of, why you gave me all of this? You're so gracious. Why would you do that? It became, he may be generous to some, but he's withholding. Joy is to be found elsewhere. Why is he so suspicious here? Why is he holding out on me? He's a liar. He's not who he says he is. And this is what happens when we start to go our own ways of his. Every time. We start looking around and we're like, thank you, God, but now I see that you were just appeasing something in me because they keep getting more. And so now we're at this moment where they are going off on him. Look how he responds. Verse 13. But he replied to one of them, and I love this. I love just the way Jesus speaks this parable. So specific. You have a group of men who are hurling insults and threats as a group. Americans, we love that mob mentality, don't we? And then you got the landowner who calmly addresses one of them, still preserving their dignity and their humanity. He had the right to embarrass them. Like, who do you, say, who do you, who do you think that I am? I'm going to take back all that I gave you. You don't deserve anything because your attitude. That's how we parent half the time. Right? He's like, that's a gospel lesson. No. <laughs> but we want to make a point. This is not how the landowner does it. He comes to him and look at the tone. He replied to one of them and said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. I, 
that alone makes me marvel about Jesus. Like the natural response to being antagonized, right? To have anyone coming after you and not understanding that you were actually being generous is, oh, I was going to let this slide, but not anymore. You're going to call me that? Let me tell you exactly what I was doing for you. You didn't have a job. You had no money. You couldn't pay for anything. Guess what I did? I came to you, and I gave you the opportunity. I'm the generous one. So you know what? You lost it. That's how I would respond. I'm a pastor. Um, And I would find a way to justify it. Jesus shows the heart of God and says, instead of embarrassing He is teaching, and he's showing them, I am generous. And the point of me showing you I'm generous is not to make you feel stupid, but it's to remind you you're blind right now, man. You started to believe that I'm a liar, and I'm not. He approaches them. Just a side note. So those of us this morning alone, the word has a way of doing this. The spirit of God takes the word of God, no matter who's preaching, and tattoos it in our heart, and we feel conviction. I want you to know when you feel conviction on this, and we all should, um, you have one of two ways to go with that. You go home and you're like, I am the worst. I'm never thankful. I never have gratitude. I'm always comparing. Oh, I'm just the worst. Whatever, Lord, whatever you want to do with me. Or you can be reminded that he approaches you not as an insecure 17-year-old, but instead as a God who's fully secure, who's holy. That word holy is synonymous with whole, W-H-O-L-E. He's lacking nothing. He is not hurt or wounded. He is not insecure, fractured, or splintered at all. He is coming with full security Coming to you saying, hey, calm down. You're not seeing clearly. Your flesh has blinded you. Let me give you clarity. That's what the word of God does for us, by the way, right? So we keep seeing this. Verse 13, he says, but he replied to one of them and said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Verse 14, um, take what belongs to you and go. I love this. See, we read, I'm telling you, we read the Bible so backward because we're like, I'll tell you how I would say this. Take it and go. It's not what Jesus did. Like he's not... He's not moody. Y'all know that, right? Jesus is not having like bad days and given to his emotions in unhealthy ways. He's just not. He doesn't say, take, take your denarius and go. He's like, hey, take this and go and enjoy it. Take this grace and let this grace be used. He's saying, go and enjoy it. Instead of standing here being angry about the fact that I gave you generosity and grace. He says, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose of what belongs to me? Or is it that you begrudge my generosity? Here's the verse that we're familiar with. Uh, so the last will be first and the first last. Isn't it amazing how many verses, like out of context, like that's the verse we'll put on the plaque in the kitchen. It's like, hey, wait in line, the last will be first. And then you read it in context of the actual passage. You're like, oh. And he's talking about, What a grace it is that I'm a God who's given you, you didn't deserve, and I'm also so slow to anger. I'm so patient. I'm so generous that even those in the 11th hour, I bless them with generosity. If anything, that should make you feel more secure about how generous I am. Like when God gives you something or someone gives you something, but you're always thinking they're going to take it away, and then you watch him give it to those who you actually think are less worthy, even though they're not, what does it do to you? He goes, wow, he's for real. (laughs) He really meant that. So what he was doing was actually teaching the first group's hearts, you can trust me. They took it as, how dare you? It's amazing how wicked our flesh gets in, right? Now let's kind of unpack this really briefly, what what this looks like, because this is hard. And this is a hard deal, telling you. Um, In here, there's got to be some of us. 
Maybe your story is that you have been wanting to be pregnant. You and your spouse, y'all have been, y'all have been praying for it. You, you thought the Lord has given it to you. Like, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to have, you know, 2.5 kids, the American <laughs> average. I don't know what that 0.5 is going to look like, but 2.5 kids, and I'm going to have this and that. And it's four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years, and it hasn't happened. And what used to be this, this thing of hope now has become this wall of why you don't trust them anymore. And it's painful. Listen, I can say this because I do have three children. We also went through five miscarriages, and my wife went through two ectopic pregnancies and many surgeries. I know those years, I know those years, all the doubts. Um, and you're wondering, I thought you were good, but the more I'm looking around, and these people who said they didn't even want kids, they have seven. How does that make sense? It's not fair, right? Or I, I've been working my tail off for that promotion. They don't deserve it. I know that for a fact because we always say, I know it for a fact as if we're sovereign. I know it for a fact. <laughs> and you gave that to them. It's not fair. Uh, again, mentioned this earlier. Maybe you've, you've had a desire to be married and it's not happening. And now it, it's hit this point for you to where it's not hope anymore. Now it's just filled with anger and resentment, and you become cynical. I know that place. I visit that place often in my life. Um, maybe it's finances. Maybe it's with your spouse. Lord, why didn't you give me a wife or a husband who actually understood me? I thought that was part of the whole thing. And I'm serving, maybe. And they don't respond. And then you look at other marriages. And isn't it amazing how we do things? This is how, how twisted we are. Um, depending on the situation, if we're in a season especially of feeling this way about God, we will look at certain people in small moments and make an overwhelming assessment that's not true. And then we will take things about us and do the same the opposite way. So uh, I can tell you how I do this. I do this in some really weird ways. Um, it could be, I could go through a week or maybe a day or maybe just I'm having an off hour. I don't know. I'll drive home. And I'm starting to look at, like, oh, my, my friend Matt, his yard, man, it's immaculate. Like, two-inch grass in July. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you, he's bribing the grass somehow. It's perfect. And then I have all these assessments about him. He's always calm. Man, I wish I was like that. I bet his wife, I bet every day she's like, I'm so lucky to have him. I bet his kids, who I know very well. I bet they never disobey. And when they disobey, they quickly go, I'm sorry, Dad, because you're so awesome and kind. <laughs> and, and I bet for discipline, everything is like this perfect tone. Like, son, you didn't obey me, so now I have to discipline you. And I bet they respond with, I get it. <laughs> right? Anyone do that? Maybe not that exact kind of thing, but with someone else? I bet they go on long walks and they're so in love. Man, I bet they could write books about marriage. My home, um, I'm impatient. Um, I spend more time apologizing to my kids. Sorry I flew off the handle. That was not okay. Uh, sorry, honey. I don't think I'm as smart as you were hoping I'd be when we got married. <laughs> um, or why aren't you more tenderhearted when I'm pouring my heart out to you? What's wrong with you? It's amazing the things I start seeing. Not fair. Why can't I be like him? All because of a three-second assessment of driving by and him going, that's all it takes for me. Am I crazy or does this resonate at all? So we live by these comparisons, by and large, that are insane. 
And so they shape everything in us. They shape how we see people. So now um, those around us, our brothers and sisters, are no longer family. They're enemies who we portray as family with the way we look and the way we act. But really in our hearts, when they get something new or some kind of blessing, whatever it might be, uh, we say all the right things. I'm so happy for you. And your heart's like, you deserve none of that. And I'm not happy for you. You're pregnant? Oh, man, that's amazing. But it's not. You got a new job? Your other three jobs were better than any job I had. So I'm so happy that God has given you a new one that's even better. Is this, I'm just trying to make sure we're clear on this, right? Is this therapy session for me? I kind of feel like it is. It's not like I have some issues coming out. Oh, Lord, help me. Um, I just want you to see that, like, we believe so many lies. And the lies go to our identity. It's a belief that, that God, you are the perfect father, but maybe not toward me. I'm the one son, the one daughter who you've chosen. You're tired. You're put out with. I've done too much. I doubt too much. I'm doing the same sin that I did 13 years ago. I'd be tired of me too. So then you start thinking you deserve it, but then you get frustrated because you believe things about the gospel. It says, no, that's not what grace is. So then you're confused and mad. And you don't know how to deal with it all. Um, I, I want to just read a couple of verses here, just a few verses here from Philippians, and then we're going to wind this down. Because um, I think we have an idea of how heavy um, this issue of comparison is, right? Uh, Paul speaks to this. He speaks to this issue of contentment. Um, it's amazing how we view people in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, like, wow, they're so godly. No, they're not. You go read Matthew 1 sometime, the genealogy of Jesus. There's a reason he chose that genealogy. They are a flat-out mess. Murderers, there's incest, there's prostitution upon prostitution. There is, you name the sin, he chooses the bloodline. says, that's who I associate with. That's who I give grace to. So when you're looking at people in Scripture, they're not upheld as like, look at these heroes. They're, they're a mess like us. And so when we look at Paul, same thing. Paul, if you sometimes go and read in, in Corinthians uh, chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11, I believe, um, it's where he starts talking about how hard his life is. He's not complaining. He's trying to help us understand, hey, following Jesus is not easy. Circumstances don't dictate joy. He says, um, I have been left for dead five times from being stoned. Uh, I have been given uh, the 39 lashes, which has killed a man, that kills, kills, and he still survived it. I've been dangerous from rivers, which is, means flooding, which at some point you're like, quit going my rivers. He goes, I, I've been shipwrecked three times. Again, we're like, okay, don't go on boats. You know why he's doing all that? Because he, he wants to take the gospel to those who haven't heard. And he goes, not to mention every day I wake up with this anxiety about my brothers and sisters in different churches that I had to leave to come to a new place, afraid that wolves are going to devour them. He goes, welcome to the center of God's will. That's not the American dream. The reason he says that, he goes, now how in the world do you find contentment when you physically, emotionally, spiritually feel at war, right? Because our answer is like, uh, I know how to feel more content. Pay raise. Have those children that you desire. Uh, your spouse gets fixed, whatever that means emotionally. Um, all the things we want. That's our idea, and that's not what the Lord does. He wants to grow our, our faith and trust in him, not just fix things all the time, right? This is what, what Paul says real quick. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. I want to read these, read these three verses together. It's not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, there's that verse that we're like, oh, I know that one. <laughs> but he's not talking about games. He's not talking about, you know, a football game. He's talking about the only way I can grow in content is I have to fight daily, sometimes hourly, in the scriptures, in community, in confessing sin, singing praises, in faith, God, what you say is true, not my lies. He has to train himself to believe what is true. And the way we think about it is like, well, okay, contentment is probably this thing that if we pray enough, it magically appears. No. Look what he says in verse 11. I have learned in whatever situation. Learned is an ongoing learning, the way that's written. Because I am learning how to grow in contentment. It's hard. Look, you can't earn your salvation and you can't fight for it. Jesus gives it as the grace and gift that it is. But there are things in your obedience to Jesus you have to fight for. Like think about any spiritual discipline. You have to fight for it, am I right? You're begging him for his spirit and his power, but you have to fight for it. And the only reason we don't is because it's just hard. Like if someone said, hey, do you fast? Like I haven't fasted in a while, translation, nope. Okay, why? And we can come with all the reasons. And we are great at giving all these spiritual sounding reasons. Well, I'm just waiting, praying for the right time. Like, if we were honest, we'd say, I just really love food. I don't want to not eat. I love it. And I don't want to feel discomfort. That is like the basis of my life, not to feel discomfort. So it is hard in faith to say no to food and seek him in prayer instead. It's hard to show up on Sunday mornings and be vulnerable. It's hard to confess sin. Anyone agree? It's hard to sing praises when you feel nothing. That's part of the journey. God, give me the grace to have boldness and the courage to obey. It is hard. So what he's saying is that contentment is not just a serene thing given. The spirit in you is giving you obedience to fight for it. And as you attain it more and more, it's like this slow, sanctifying thing happening where like, I'm growing in contentment. You don't just wake up one day going, I'm content. That's what we want. That's, that's the American dream. That's not the biblical dream. So there's hard work. I want to give you a definition here of what contentment is. Just really quick. We're almost done. Contentment is the developing. Okay, that's the key word. Contentment is the developing of a satisfied heart. It's the developing of a satisfied heart. It means when you have those moments and you can see more and more that comparison starting to get at you. It doesn't mean stop. It means, God, I confess to you, I am drowning right now. I'm just drunk on comparison. Give me eyes to see and enough faith just to respond even right now in prayer, just enough to say, I don't want that. I want to run to you. It's a training of your heart over time. It's not avoiding it. It's saying, I want to deal with that. Lord, I don't want to grow cynical and bitter because I haven't been given the things I wanted. God, give me a heart that says, I trust you instead. And I'm not there yet. Oh, get me there. It's a process of slowly getting there. It's not just, okay, now I've arrived and I'm content. It's slow. It's fought for, okay? Um, let me, um, you know, place that kind of a surprise for me where I've, I've found this to be very true. And I'm in it right now. Um, about three years ago, uh, my, my dad came over. My dad is the godliest. It really is. He's one of those men that 
I sometimes feel really guilty by talking about his godliness. He's not perfect, um, but I know that a lot of, a lot of us didn't grow up with moms and dads who led us in faith and, and were those people you could run to. God was very kind to me to give me that kind of set of parents. Very grace, gracious. Didn't deserve it. Um, my dad just, Jesus eyes. You just, he'd, he'd say, how's your day? Like, fine, I'll confess sin. Whatever, dad. It's <laughs> so like, I was just asking how you're doing. I was like, okay. Uh, it's just so kind and gracious. Uh, this is in uh, July 6, 2016. So um, my daughter, my oldest, she had broken her thumb. I was taking her that morning to get uh, her x-ray, and it was broken, so she got a cast on it. My dad was at the house doing some yard work for us, always at the house doing something, just serving him and my mom, serving, serving, serving. Uh, we get back home. We, my daughter has two Sharpies. She had a backup Sharpie just in case. And like, granddaddy's going to sign this cast, and he's the first one. Can't wait. So, yep. She wouldn't even let me do it. I'm like, hmm. Okay, so we get home and um, um, can't find my dad. And my dad just goes for walks. He knocks the door saying, hi, I'm Jeff's dad. Just random things like that. He's very kind. And, um, and I had to go to a meeting. I said, hey, babe, uh, granddaddy will, you know, close up shop. I'll be back in an hour. I got to go to this meeting. I'll be right back. I go out to the car, um, and I hadn't seen him yet. And I see as I'm getting to my car, the side gate of our house is open. And uh, it's rarely ever open. I look, and I can see my dad in the corner, back corner of our house is laying down. And it's amazing. When you hit certain moments are really pivotal, uh, you go back, and my initial response was there was nothing wrong. It's hot. It's July. It's Austin. He's just laying down. He's a dreamer. He's probably just kicking back. And then it hits me pretty quickly. Something's wrong. So I, I, I run to him, and, you know, his eyes were half open. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how long he had been passed, but he, he wasn't breathing anymore. And I just remember um, calling 911 and her talking me through it. I knew CPR. Um, and there's a reason I'm going to tell you some of this, uh, I think, because the gravity of it matters. CPR is not like what they see in movies. It's not delicate. It's painful. Um, it's damaging. Uh, seven, minutes and 11, seven, seven minutes, 11 seconds, I, I did CPR until they, the paramedics got there. Put it on my phone, marked it down. Um, had a lot of tears, had a lot of crying, had a lot of screaming, trying to get my dad's attention, nothing. Um, I felt his ribs break. I felt a lot of very painful things that I still can't deal with. Something happened to me that day. It wasn't just losing my dad. It was, there was a trauma for me. And I've never been the person that put up walls. I didn't understand when people say, I'm walled up. I'm like, why? I've always been very open. Um, but then I, I became this person, didn't, I did not know how to deal with it. And I knew all the right things to say, and I knew counseling, and I just had no, I, I had no ability. Um, that first year was a blur, I don't barely remember it. Uh, year two was so hard. And I was really frustrated because I was comparing my healing from that to this ambiguous healing out in the world that's not a real thing to a timetable. Well, I'm in year two. Should I still be this distraught? So then even, and I still go to counseling for every three to four weeks. I mean, still, I got all kinds of issues, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> and I'm still dealing three years and one month with why three years and one month later do I still feel like it happened yesterday? Why am I still not okay? Why am I still not there? Because I don't want to be the person that keeps telling people I'm still distraught over my dad because I don't want to be that person. I want to put the person going, but it's getting better. It doesn't feel better. <laughs> So I have gotten to a place of comparing my healing 
in my timetable to everyone else's. That's not a real timetable. Does that make sense? Um, my, my dreams I still have of seeing him in an airport, and I miss his voice. And oh, I just love his voice. I go online to hear him sermons of his, just to hear his voice. I had this dream where I see him in an airport, and we, we hug, and we just sit, and he doesn't talk. I want him to talk. And then I have these friends who their parents, they talk a lot, and they choose not to talk to him. I'm like, who do you think you are? You don't deserve that. I deserve better. It's amazing. Not only an aspiration for more money or a better job or family to be better or whatever it is, even in your healing and your brokenness, you compare it. We compare. And the process for me has been going to, to this statement. God has not withheld one thing from me. That's how I see him as one who's withheld. The gospel reminds us of this. Listen very closely. He literally commissioned his idea sent his son to be slaughtered for you and I. What person does that and then us charge them with, you're not generous enough? We have it backwards. I'm convinced you didn't give me this or you're not generous. He says, I've given you everything you need. So I've had slowly, even in my counseling, my dear friend who's a fellow pastor walking me through, Jeff, um, God is not withholding something from you that you're missing out on. He has given you everything on purpose that is needed for your heart. So I'm going to give you an example. I've never needed Jesus and his love and his comfort more than I had the last three years in my entire life. So God has seen it fit and wise to give me a vulnerable, sensitive heart right now where I actually receive his comfort, not the world's. That's a good thing. Do I cry a lot? Yep. Do I wish my dad was back? You better believe it. Do I hate those seven minutes, 11 seconds? Yes. But have I drawn closer to Jesus in relationship light years compared to where I was three years ago? I mean, my belief that he is a comforter is overwhelmingly more profound than it ever was. Doesn't make me happy about my dad dying. It makes me happier that I have a God who's like that. And I have to be reminded, you have never withheld. There's, you never withheld. When you should have withheld, you didn't, Lord. And I think this is what Paul's getting at. When he says, it is his strength, it is his grace, it is kindness. So I think what we do in this, we say, God, don't let me be that cynical person. Even in my pain, this is not me saying don't hurt. Absolutely hurt. But in your hurt, you run to the one who is the provision, not from the one who's the provision. He's not withholding that God in your wisdom and your sovereignty, it's not what I would have done for my life, but clearly you know what I need more. One of the great, great gifts God gave me, is not making me rich. He knows if I had a lot of money, I would be foul. So me having many months going, oh, can we pay that? Are we able to pay that? Means I'm running to him. That's where he wants me. It's in his withholding that is such generosity. Hard to say, but it's a truth we cling to, okay? And so this morning, I think what we find satisfaction is that he is a generous, gracious God that we get to cling to. And when we don't, he's clinging to us even better. So could we pray and just ask, Lord, these issues of comparison, would you address it with reminding me, you've given me everything my soul has ever desired and then some. Let's do that. God, um, wow, what a, what a unique text. Your word is this double-edged sword where it is painful and life-giving. How do you do that, Lord? Lord, I just pray for my, my, my dear family here. Oh, I love this church. Brothers and sisters, I imagine the amount of stories in here. 
where it is so hard to believe in your goodness right now. God, would you remind all of us, first and foremost, that you are the vineyard owner, (laughs) the one who has no need for anyone, but has the desire to bestow blessing on his people. You're a God who is a good and perfect father who loves to give good gifts to his kids. That even in your withholding and even in your taking away, you're doing something. Would you give us faith to fight to understand that? Spirit of God, would you make our hearts sensitive to what we're not usually sensitive to? Would we not run from this? Instead, would we embrace this and say, Lord, what do you want to do with my heart right now? And I pray for marriages in here. We feel like they're just so divided. There have been wondering eyes looking at other husbands and wives going, why can't you be more like them? God, would you, would you put those kind of blinders that are appropriate up now? Would you give us eyes to see you as the one who's given everything on purpose? So now may we give graciously as you've given to us, Lord, please. We see one another not as threats, but instead as brothers and sisters to celebrate, to uphold, to run to, to embrace, to comfort, to congratulate. I pray for those in here who feel lonely, who feel like you've left them and you've withheld. God, would you give them eyes to see and ears to hear? Only your spirit can do it. So God, as we sing now, we want to be a people who sing these words as a means of preaching the truth of your gospel back to our own hearts. We want to echo until we go hoarse what is true. Let us preach to ourselves these songs that are true about who you are. We love you. And if we're not there, oh God, make our hearts soft so that we do. Thank you for being compassionate and generous.